There is a podcast that lies between the imagination of two simple-minded earthlings. Travel with these two longtime friends, Jimbo and 80s E, as they attempt to explore the fifth dimension. Follow along with them as they take the key and unlock the door to the vast space between shadow and substance. This podcast is one of trivia, of insight, and of sounds and ideas from one of the greatest television shows ever produced. You are embarking on a timeless journey. There is your signpost up ahead. You are entering the tragedy of cinema's Twilight Zone. This object, should any of you have lived underground for the better parts of your lives and never had occasion to look toward the sky, is an airplane. Its official designation, a DC-3. We offer this rather obvious comment because this particular airplane, the one you're looking at, is a freak. Now, most airplanes take off and land as per schedule. On rare occasions, they crash. But all airplanes can be counted on doing one or the other. Now, yesterday morning, this particular airplane ceased to be just a commercial carrier. As of its arrival, it became an enigma. A seven-ton puzzle made out of aluminum, steel, wire, and a few thousand other component parts, none of which add up to the right thing. In just a moment, we're going to show you the tail end of its history. We're going to give you 90% of the jigsaw pieces, and you and Mr. Sheckley here of the Federal Aviation Agency will assume the problem of putting them together along with finding the missing pieces. This we offer as an evening's hobby, a little extracurricular diversion, which is really the national pastime in the Twilight Zone. All right, guys, welcome back to the Tragedy Cinema, the Twilight Zone series. I'm your host, Jimbo. And sitting in the southern layer in the fifth dimension, 80Z. Glad to be back with you all again in this new year. Still going to say Happy New Year. Um, So... We're in episode number two. Jibbo, what do you think so far? Well, we know my thoughts on the first episode. <laughs> um, season two is just not starting off very well, is it? Well, no, it's not because we're in season three. But Well, this is true, but season two didn't start off very well either, if I remember. <laughs> oh, man, to see how bad this se- That last episode we just did. Is his just, eyes glazed over and rolled back into his head. It's just was terrible and and you know this one's not much better how dare you of course you? eric it's a time traveling one so i'm sure uh, sort of maybe sort of uh let's jump right into yeah let's jump into the, we've, the arrival we've arrived at <laughs> season three episode number two and it it is entitled the arrival as i aforementioned it was directed by boris segal or segal i never know how to pronounce his name Uh, Properly written by Rod Serling, this one. Uh, The original air date for this particular episode was September the 22nd of 1961. And this always brings us to our beloved segment in the podcast, in which we love to call... On This Day in History! Alright, on this day in film and TV history for September the 22nd, There are a ton, and I mean a ton, of television premieres. So I'm going to read them. Here's how it's going to go. I'm going to read them to you, Jimbo. You tell me you've seen them, not seen them. There's there's several, obviously, because we're right in the heart of television premiere season. So I'm just going to go down through the years. A lot of TV shows 
um, premiered on this day, September 22nd. But before we do that, in 1955, let's go all the way back, the commercial television begins in the UK with the launch of ITV, and it soon first airs the first advertisement, they call it advertisement, the Brits do, I guess, the first basic, basically a commercial on TV in the UK was for Gibbs SR Toothpaste, <laughs> which is interesting considering that we all associate good dental hygiene with the Brits, right? <laughs> See Austin Powers. So their first commercial on television in 1955 was for uh, SR Gibbs SR Toothpaste. I've never heard of it. Um, for all of our uh, English friends over there, I didn't say that. <laughs> Forward all hate mail to ADZ. Yeah, right. Uh, I'm going to take some heat for that one. All right, so um, let's move ahead a few years. to so 1957. All right, now this is where I'm going to ask you yay or nay. 1957 Western comedy series Maverick premieres on ABC and it's starring James Garner. Seen it? Nope. Not seen it. Nope. 1976 TV drama Charlie's Angels. Unfortunately, yes. With Farrah Fawcett, Kate Jackson, Jacqueline Smith, and John Forsyth. All right, 1982. I know you. I know the answer to this one. The TV sitcom Family Ties debuts with Michael yes. J. Fox. All right. 1987. The TV series Full House premieres with Bob Saget and John Stamos. Absolutely. He's nodding yes. 1989. Baywatch, starring David Hasselhoff. I've seen it. <laughs> I'm going to plead the fifth on this one because scene is <laughs> that's, that's scene. I'm All right. Uh, 1994. Anderson. I don't remember much about the Hoff. <laughs> you see him running down the beach. With I wasn't the... paying attention to him when he ran there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was prime True. time teen Jimbo there. <laughs> so where did I leave off? 1989 Baywatch. 1994 Friends. No TV sitcom. I've created only by... seen maybe. One or two episodes of that. I cannot stay in that show. Created by David Crane and Marta Kaufman. Starring Jennifer Aniston, Courtney Cox, Lisa Kudrow, Matt LeBlanc, and Matthew Perry. The late, the late Matthew. Matthew Perry and David Schwimmer. Also the late Bob Saget a few mm -hmm. series ago. Uh, 1999, The West Wing premieres. Starring Martin Sheen, Rob Lowe, and Richard Schiff. Nope. Nope. You? No for The West Wing. Um Parts I remember seeing episode. the commercials, but I've never watched yeah, it. I think I've seen parts of an episode, but never an entire episode. 2003 TV sitcom Two and a Half Men premieres char uh, starring Charlie Sheen, John Cryer, nope. Chuck Lorre. Uh, I have maybe caught an episode or two, but yeah. I didn't like it. It wasn't my, t my forte. Yeah. 2004 Lost. Absolutely loved it. Created by J.J. Abrams. Great. Starring Matthew great. Fox. Little known fact. Okay. My best friend Patrick, myself, and yes, my son, have recorded probably 18 or 19 episodes of episode one or of season one of Lost to release on this podcast. It's not finished yet. Really? So we're, we might be releasing the Lost series like we did the Twilight Zone series. Oh, those interesting. Ones. For those that have never watched it, like Eric, I'm sure, because he got lost. Yeah, no, I think I've seen probably the first season. I think I've seen every episode. But, yeah, I wasn't a, a major fan on its original airing. I, d I didn't watch it on its original screening on television or whatever. 
All right, that brings me to the end of uh, film and TV history for on this day, this for September the 22nd. Let me give you a few notations on this particular episode entitled The Arrival. Let's come back down to earth here, back down into the zone, if you will. So the total production cost for this episode, way down, dude, way down. I mean, it might even compete with some of the videotaped episodes. It came in at $34,829.51. And when we adjust that for inflation, we're looking at about $357,673.44. So... Obviously, they either cut some corners somewhere for this episode. Uh, I don't know where, but uh, you know, very you just, cheaply made. You just think of like I think Seinfeld during its final few seasons, they were making a, a million dollars a piece per episode or something mm-hmm. crazy like that, and that's I know half of one of their salaries for one episode. Three hundred fifty-seven thousand in today's dollars. So dates of rehearsal. Only one date of rehearsal, that's July the 11th, 1961. Three days of filming, however, though, July the 12th, 13th, and 14th of 1961. And let me just dig into those dates a little more and give you some info. The entire first day and morning of the second day were devoted to filming all the scenes required in the hangar and the operation tower and on the airstrip. And on the afternoon of the second day, the cast and crew returned to Stage 5 at MGM to film the interior of the operations room. Hmm. And on the third day, the remaining scenes of the operation room were completed and filming wrapped. So there's your breakdown of those filming days. Jimbo, please do me the great service of telling me who the cast of characters are in this particular episode. Sure. We have a little bit bigger cast than we did uh, last time. Not much, uh, but just slightly bigger. So we had Harold J. Stone. Uh, he played the main character, Grant Sheckley. Um, he was in The Wrong Man. He was in a movie called Spartacus. And he was also in a movie called The Greatest Story Ever Told, if you've ever seen that, Eric. Okay. Uh, Fred Wayne. He played Paul Malloy. Uh, he was in a movie, uh, Man on the Moon, in 1999. Um, I'm trying to think. That, mm, that might be where... Uh, Reese Witherspoon was a little girl in that. Um, I think that might be oh, like yeah, Reese, Man on the Moon. I've seen I think it. might be Reese Witherspoon, or is that Man on the Moon with um, the uh, Man in the Moon or Man on the No, moon? the Man on the Moon. Okay. Uh, no, I'm talking about the, what's the one with um, Jim, Jim Carrey? Was that Man on the Moon or Man in the Moon? I can't remember. Uh, something like that. Is it one of those two? But it was in '99. It might be the Jim Carrey one where he played Andy Kaufman. Um, I didn't look that up. No, I think it's is it's, it the, a, it's is another it movie where uh, it's about like the, she falls in love with this farm uh, boy who right right and he gets his, run over by a tractor. Yeah, his yeah. sister her sister is in love with him too. Right, but I don't know if that's this one or if that's the Andy Kaufman oh, movie is what I'm saying. If okay. you want to look that up while I keep okay. going, uh, Noah Keene, um, he was the airline executive Bingston. Uh, he was in Battle for the Planet of the Apes with as Abe the teacher. Robert Carnes uh, was Robbins. Uh, he was in Scooter Who, Scooter Hey, 1948. And he was also in a bunch of Alfred Hitchcock's Presents. Bing, there's another guy named Bing, Bing Russell. Uh, he played George Cousins. Uh, he was in The Magnificent Seven. Uh, he was in the Living Christ series where he played Lazarus in 1951. 
And he was in a movie called Tarantula in 1955 where he played the deputy. All right, here comes the Google device. And it says Man in the Moon is Reese, Reese Witherspoon movie that we uh, Yes, so this is Man. Before. Man on the Moon is the Jim Carrey. So he movie. was in the Jim Carrey movie then Got in 99. Okay. Uh, then we have uh, Jim Bowles. He was the dispatcher. He was in Get Smart, the television show in 1965. The Monkees, season two, episode seven. And a little movie called The Ghost and Mr. Chicken in 1966, <laughs> where he played Billy Ray Fox. I'm sure Eric's seen that, was starring uh, Don Knotts. Yep. Uh, Robert Brubaker, uh, he was a tower operator where he was uncredited. He was in the Books of Acts series in 1957. And yes, we have Rod Serling, once again, narrating and your host for this episode two of season three. So Brubaker, the tower operator, is, is he the one, I'm guessing, just in the opening scene, standing in the tower with his back to us, and then he's just, like, directing the plane in? Is he that one, or is he the guy that's sitting next yeah, to well, him? The other guy has a clipboard. I don't know who. Yeah, because there was two tower guys. I don't know. Anyway. Well, one of them's the dispatcher, right? Yeah, the dispatcher actually has lines, though. Jim Bowles, the dispatcher from Buffalo, yeah, he comes in and he has a couple lines. Yeah, so so I guess it would have to be the other guy. Yeah. All right, well. But he could be the the guy directing the planes in because they ask him in the uh, interrogation scene, he's like, oh, yeah, he followed my directions right on in. We chopped tires in and everything, right? Yeah, I would. I guess he I might called just be him the, the baggage handler guy because he got into the baggage and he was driving the tug or whatever. No, but I'm just saying, according to the cast, there was no other yeah, bag. Right. So, so uncredited, right. uncredited. There were two guys in the tower. You're right about that. So, all right, let's move on to the plot of this. This is a little extended plot, I guess, a little longer than normal. A commercial airliner makes a normal landing at an airport and taxis to its normal stop. The only problem is that when the doors are open, there are no passengers and no pilots. An experienced FAA investigator, Grant Sheckley, is assigned to the case. Sheckley has a good reputation and a good track record at solving crashes, but this case is a difficult one to explain. It all begins to get clearer when he realizes that not everyone is seeing exactly the same thing. For some, uh, for some the seats are blue, others see brown, and others see red. They all see different registration numbers on the aircraft. Sheckley can only come to one conclusion. What they are seeing is an illusion. Dun, dun, dun. So, we want to launch right into the episode here. Yep, let's go for it. Act 1, we start off really with an opening scene, an overhead shot of an airplane hangar roped off. You know, the airplane's roped off with armed guards surrounding it, which... I don't. I don't know if you have any in front of you, Jimbo. As we launch uh, trivia, wise, where did they get the airplane? Because it wasn't in any of my notes, and I would think that would be the centerpiece of the episode. And I don't know if they rented it. Oh, you're or, talking about the actual the airplane? actual yeah, airplane? Yeah, you got I, notes on yeah, that. Yeah, I believe so. Sorry to put you on the spot I just there. But I didn't have. Window. I didn't have uh, anything. I don't know if it was in that. this one though. Um, but while you look that up, I'll go ahead and talk about the opening shots and Rod's narration. So the opening shot is overhead. We see a roped off, like I said, an airplane. We got armed guards, and then Rod, you know, starts right in with his narration. And I'm just going to quote a bit of the narration. It says, "A seven-ton puzzle, made out of aluminum, steel, wire, and a few thousand other component parts, none of which add up to the right thing." And I really liked how he compared this episode. He sort of makes the analogy to a puzzle piece. 
Uh, I really like that uh, a lot, how he, he used that uh, analogy to sort of describe what's going to be happening in the episode. So then shortly thereafter, uh, we're introduced to Sheckley of the Federal Aviation Agency, uh, the FAA. I think that it's in my notes somewhere, but the, the FAA changed their name to the something else, and I'll have to look for it later. But he's from the Federal Aviation Agency, which is what I think it was called back in the 60s. And Did you find anything? Well, no, I just know that it's a DC-3, that it was... Yeah. Uh, I think they were shot in Santa Monica, California, but I don't unless they actually just got to borrow it. Yeah, I sh- that that's an important piece. I should have really looked uh, deeper into like how they obtained it. I, I don't I even know if it's up. in the breakdown of like how if it's it, you know normally it's in the budget of the episode, like you know what they paid for to, to either rent it or borrow it or whatever. But I don't know. I thought maybe it might be a reused of the. Um, the King Nine will not return. Yeah, to yeah, maybe. I, I remember they, they had plans. to break that down and reassemble it in the desert. Right. Yeah, there was a lot. Of, that's that's what made me think of that because there was a lot of uh, trivia regarding that particular airplane. So we get introduced to Sheckley. Uh, the title scene. It sort of goes to a title scene where we're in an air traffic tower and we're watching the plane come in for a landing. Um, and then the plane pulled into the hangar and is attended by the ground crew. That's where we're at right now. The ground, the ground crew. After the plane lands, they're they're sort of curious as to why it's taking so long for like the doors to open, and it's why it's why it's taking so long for the the uh, people on board to deboard basically. And as they're waiting, and the the uh, not the ramp attendant, I guess you could call him, he starts banging on the door. He eventually pulls the door down and. Uh, the staircase comes down with the door, and then there's no one inside. And they've got a big problem because no one's inside, no passengers. And then they're, they also open up the luggage compartment in the plane, and there's no luggage inside the compartment of the plane. It's completely empty. And uh, the baggage handler, Robbins, and the ramp attendant, George, uh, George Cousins is his name, they, they sort of like, hey... Come back me up on this. Come in here and look and make sure. But there, there's like nobody in here. You know, they're, they're going to think I'm crazy. Uh, and the baggage handler guys is like, yeah, there's not even a piece of mail in, in this luggage compartment. Like, this is super weird what's going on. And they're astounded and kind of afraid. But, Timbo, uh, do you have any... Did you? I see your books open. Do you have any trivia as far as that you wanted to off the top here? Uh, no, I do have. I did find some uh, tropes uh, on arrival. So once we get towards the end of trivia, I'll start throwing some of this. Okay. Because I was still looking for that. Oh. You know, information on the on yeah. the plane and stuff. We'll just consider it a mystery. Yeah, <laughs> a mystery lost in the twilight. If we find out some things, we'll throw it in on the Facebook post, maybe, uh, when we throw this episode up. That might be a good thing to do. Um, so, you know, we're still moving along in these scenes of this baggage handler and ramp attendant are discussing the problem with one another. And uh, then I think we go to commercial here. We fa- Or actually, no, we just fade to the next scene. And the next scene, we're in Act 2 of the, the operations room. Here's the conflict. So in walks confidently this guy Sheckley, the member of the FAA guy, and he's in the operations room. And we hear rumblings from the gathering in the meeting. 
uh, some of the rumblings we hear there there was nobody on the plane there was absolutely nobody and so uh, you know everybody's sort of talking amongst themselves and uh, Sheckley makes it clear to the personnel once he's addressed into the meeting he's introduced by the uh, the vice president of operations chief his name is uh, Bingston Bingston says all right everybody be quiet you know we got this guy Sheckley in here he's gonna he's gonna basically put the puzzle pieces back together and Sheckley wants his personnel to stick to the facts and not muddy the waters with theories because he says theories happen to be my business. So this guy is kind of... Arrogant. Yeah, for lack of a better But for opinion. a good reason. Well, that's what he goes on and he, he'll say later on, uh, I think it's in my questions and observations, I quote him again, but he, you know, he's all about his business. You know, he, he's been at this a long time. I think he says like 20-something years. And, you know, so he launches this investigation slash really interrogation of the employees. And he begins with, uh, you know, the fact that the pilot's names sound familiar. That kind of gives you a little bit of a clue right in the very beginning. That Well, he actually says the passenger manifest looks familiar. Yeah, right, right. And so he, he goes and talks to said baggage handler, Robbins, and ramp attendant cousins, and he asks them various questions. And this meeting goes on for, I don't know, a, a while. And then um, the dispatcher from Buffalo, he comes in and has asked a couple of questions about the pilots and I think the manifest part. Like, and um, basically Sheckley goes, well... Once they signed off on the manifest and you saw them as pilots, you actually see them get into the aircraft. And he's like, well, no, they, they come into like wherever the tower or wherever they signed the documents and then they left. And I never saw them again. Um, yeah. So after they're in like the interrogation phase in the operations room, um, there's an introduction made. And the introduction is to this guy named Paul Malloy. So Paul Malloy is like the public relations man for the airline or whatever. And he says, basically, like, we're not, de- he took, he, him and Sheckley kind of go at it and have a little confrontation. Like, we're not dealing with like an actual crash here. We're dealing with what he calls a disappearing act. This has never happened before. You know, Sheckley is like, he's all sure of himself, arrogant, cocky. You know, he, he, you know, he'll, He's never lost one yet, right? That's kind of what he says. Like, I've been to a million of these type of crash sites, and I've never not figured them out yet. It's maybe a bolt fell out here or something happens, but, the you know, the well, evidence keep, always comes around, and I always get it right. They keep calling it a crash site. And there it's not. Crashed. Yeah, it's, it was nothing It was a landing. Yeah, it was a, a complete, perfect landing. A complete disappearance. Right, and that's what the public relations man, um, he says. He says, we're dealing with the disappearing act. I'll quote him here. He says, now look. This couldn't have happened. An aircraft can't take off with a full crew, 13 passengers, and land in an hour and 20 minutes later with nobody on it. It it simply is not within the realm of possibility. So Malloy is very frustrated. Uh, this is the next scene when we come to the scene uh, where we're back in the hangar. He's very frustrated because after six hours of theorizing, there's no reasonable explanation. Like, these guys, you know, they're all the grounds crew people and then some of the executives and and Malloy, the public relations guy, and Sheckley, the FAA guy, they've been kicking around ideas and theories for like six hours, and they're no closer to, uh, you know, coming to a reasonable explanation, and time is running out, and they're in danger 
uh, of losing their franchise, really, because Sheckley and the government, they're going to step in and take away the franchise along with, you know, all those guys' livelihood because they work for the airlines, obviously, if they get shut down. So frustration begins to mount. And also another interesting notation that comes out of this scene in the hangar is that no relatives have inquired as to where their missing loved ones are from the manifest, right? That manifest. Well, the one guy says, shouldn't you contact them, see if they didn't get on the plane? He said, look, he said, I can only cover this up for about 15 more minutes. It's going to be a PR nightmare, basically. Yeah, yeah. and he's like, why would I I reach out to them and ask them about their... He's like, I'm going to wait for them to call. And he's like, oh, by the way, nobody's called. And they're like... What? That's kind of weird that nobody's called to, you know, request an inquiry about their missing love, potentially missing loved one. Mm-hmm. So, and then this brings you to the next segment where each man goes in and they see different seat colors, right? One guy says, no, nah, I saw blue. No, I saw brown. No, they were definitely faded. They were red. Faded they red. were faded, but they were red for sure. And each man also sees... Two different wing well, numbers, right? And, Tail wing numbers. And I wrote these down. Yeah. So Speckley says, looks up, and it's N66-something. I didn't get to catch all of it. And they asked the other guys, he said, hey, what's this number? And one of them says it's N804758, or it shows it on the screen. Mm-hmm. The next one he asks is N67588, and then there's an N07932. When, um, here in a second, when he's like, look, I'm telling you it's not here. This plane physically isn't here. I'm, it's all an imagination. I'm already proven. He said, I'm going to stick my hand in this this prop. The idiot. I'm going to stick it into a propeller. And he's like, well, what if it's real? He's like, well, then notify my wife. I'm yeah, dead. Right. I was like, okay, this is went from one extreme to the other. But I was watching as he went under the wing. It changes numbers again. Oh, it does. Yeah. I, and it was, it, and all I called was N10 something. I couldn't catch the rest. But I thought that was very cool that they oh. kept changing the numbers as they kept going, hmm. showing it on the screen. Yeah. That is cool. So the conclusion that. Sheckley comes to, or his theory after everybody sees everything mass different. Mass suggestion. Yeah, mass suggestion or slight hypnosis. I'm like, what? That makes... The aircraft doesn't... <laughs> well, you have heard about those people that, let's say, us here in Indiana, and people in Italy, and people in, let's say, Egypt, and people in Iceland, and people in California. They all... There's a thing, technically, it's like a mass hypnosis where everybody thinks on a certain thing to happen, and they can manifest it, manifest it to happen. Okay. Um, so this doesn't have anything to do with like a Mandela effect. No, no, this is actually a real phenomenon that people do. Okay. Um, does it work? I don't know. I've never done it, but I'm just saying if you pay attention, you can look up several things. Where okay. It's called a mass. It might be called mass hysteria. Really? Mass Yeah, because when you have a lot of people thinking on the same thing and all their energy focused on the same thing, they can manifest it to happen. Mm, yeah, you need to look okay. at that. Okay, I'll take a look at that at some point. No, so, you won't. You're right. Mass <laughs> suggestion or slight hypnosis is Sheckley's theory. That's the theory he comes up with. The airplane is just an illusion, and the only way to prove his theory uh, may put him at considerable risk. Can I ask you a question? Absolutely. Why does he have to stick his hand in the propeller? Yeah, why couldn't he, he find throw out a rock? <laughs> Can he use a tire iron? Can he, he do something? He's a so chain? okay. It goes back to his pride. He's so confident <laughs> in his theories and how he can solve these puzzles. Hey. He's willing to put life and limb on the line he was to make right. his point. Well, well, we'll we'll find out, won't we? <laughs> so. That brings us to Act 3. He demands or commands the guy to roll the plane out and turn the engines on. Okay. 
this is the guy I feel sorry for the most, right? Because he goes up there. Number one is he's sitting in there and he's got the propeller. This guy sticks his hand inside of this thing and cuts off. He will be a murderer, accomplice to murder. <laughs> but when he goes to put his hand in, what happens there? Disappears. The guy inside the cockpit disappeared with the yeah, airplane. They all so, disappear, right? Well, one by one. But, yeah. I mean, that guy, especially because everybody looks like, like, well, and he starts calling about Malloy and he disappears and they all disappear until it's just him by himself in the hangar. Uh, yeah. So here's his theory. Just to reiterate, if the plane is imaginary, then so are the engines and the props. And if Sheckley sticks his hand in them, then nothing will happen. Brilliant solution. But if they're real, make sure, you're, like you said, make sure you notify my wife. Uh, the, <laughs> Eric, I'm going to go out here and stick my hand in the belt of my truck. And if I lose my hand or die, just tell my wife. Yeah, for I'll me, knock like, on the door. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the plane disappears. Uh, we already said that. We already gave it away, the, the quote-unquote twilight zone twist. The plane disappears along with the other men, slowly, one by one. Sheckley then becomes confused. Later, we see the scene where he staggers into the operations office, and he appears... Well, after everyone... Let me back up. After everyone disappears... He's in the hangar, like, yelling for everybody, Where are you? <laughs> Dude, they just disappeared right in front of your yeah, eyes. Like, come back, what happened? You're like, you proved your point. Like, he's convinced right. that he's wrong, though. Yeah, right. So then he becomes ser- really confused, almost drunk-like, and staggers into the operations office, and he appears to be, like, either drunk or sick. <clears throat> Pardon me. And then Bingston and Malloy... They, you know, instantly they're transported back to reality. They don't know who this guy is. Like, he's like a stranger to them. He's like, who is this guy? And then he starts saying, like, oh, what happened to Flight 107? He, you know, he starts asking the guys all the questions, you know, like they were familiar with one another. And they don't know what who he is. And finally, Bankston deduces, hey, you're, you're Sheckley, right? He remembers him probably from, like, a newspaper report or something or... The the history of the... Actually, does it even say... I know the flight came from Buffalo, but does it say the destination, like where they're at? Oh, where it came from? No, it came from Buffalo, oh, but where, where they're, they're at? at? I don't know if it ever says. I don't know if it does either. Yeah. So, they're, you know, no. oh, and then, and then Bingston says, oh, well, there has been one flight lost in 20 years of, you know, this hangar or whatever, or this airport, and it was lost in the fog. 17 years ago <clears throat> excuse me it was lost in the fog like 17 years ago and that case uh, was still unsolved it's like still on the books and no one knows what happened uh it we assume that it crashed but there it was for reasons unknown and they start you know like unpacking and he tells them it's like flight 107 out of buffalo or something and this is where sheckley starts getting a little what do you mean? He's More like, manic, maybe? Yeah, like... Huh. Yeah, he's, he, he's like, you mean to tell me there wasn't a flight in here and you didn't lose a 13 passengers today and all its crew? Right. Like, no, so, it arrived right on time. So we deduced... Well, Bankston and Malloy kind of realized that this, this was... Sheckley was the one assigned to that flight 20 years ago. And it's and, the one case... Yeah, the ghost ship case, if you will, that never got solved. And Can't find it. They don't know what happened. And can, can you imagine, though, Eric? Think with me, if you will, back from, I believe, season two, the Odyssey of Flight, whatever. What if 33. that? What if that was the flight that was missing in this? 
Oh, so you're drawing dot. You're connecting dots there. Okay. What do you think? Wouldn't that be cool? A cool. It'd be little... cooler if they said it was Flight Thirty Three. That's what I'm saying. But would it be, wouldn't it have been cool though if they? Yeah, they tied those two together. Yeah, definitely. That definitely would have been cool. So that's kind of where the the story leaves us uh, at the end. Sheckley sort of stumbles out, more confused. Uh, he, he's all he's gone. Cra- he's psychotic, really, almost gone crazy. This this one thing has driven him. His whole life, yeah, he's going nuts. mad. Yeah, and I think Rod in his uh, narration at the end even says this is what a psychotic breakdown or something like that. Well, he says this too. is his one Achilles heel. Yeah. And if you notice, when he's kneeling down, what I picture is if you've ever seen the movie Troy, where they throw the spear, whatever, it goes through his Achilles heel, mm, and he's okay. kneeling down. I kind of... That's kind of where my oh, mind went to. Right, his, like he got that was his Achilles heel, and he was down on his. Oh, okay. so I mean that's just something my mind went to. I don't know if it's that's got any good. merit to it or not. Yeah, that's a good bit of acting to put those two together and to yeah portray that by him going down like that. Yeah. Do you? Uh, I'm on the trivia. Do you want to insert me, anything? Let me do these uh, tropes I found on the arrival. So, thirteen is unlucky. The original flight 107 was carrying thirteen passengers when it suddenly disappeared for unknown reasons. The ace. Grant claims himself to be one having never been baffled by a case. Grant says, I've had 22 years in this saddle and I've never been licked yet. (laughs) The Achilles Hill. Grant has experienced ace of his profession, but the case of Flight 107 from 17 or 18 years ago was the one he was never able to crack and it ate at him all these years. Rod Sterling mentions this trope in his closing narration. Captain Obvious. Rod Sterling's opening narration goes this route. This object, should any of you have lived underground for better parts of your lives and never had an occasion to look forward to the sky, is an airplane. Chromosome casting. This episode has an all-male speaking cast. The only woman to be found are stewardess who get no lines or characterization. Yeah, I've got trivia on that when we get to it. Yeah. Eureka moment. Grant has a moment when Robbins offhandedly states that he's creeped out because uh, by all the empty blue seats on the plane because he's seeing brown seats. When he looks inside and Bankston reports seeing red seas, he then asks everyone to present to read the ID number on the plane cell and everyone reports seeing a different number. At that moment, he realized that they're all seeing a hallucinatory DC-3 and they're all uh, differing on the fine details. The Flying Dutchman. Flight 107 is said to be this as its mystery disappearance was never found. Heroic BSOD. Grant loses his mind when the repressed memory of the only case he ever failed to solve comes back to haunt him, slowly rambling to himself as he leaves the office. Madness mantra, mantra. Grant descends into madness as his worst memory continues to eat at him, repeating, "We've always found the causes. I've never been licked on a case yet." Over and over, as he stumbles out of the hangar. My greatest failure. Um, I'm not going to read all these. Nothing is scarier. Uh, Robbins, the mechanic lampshade. How the plane is itself unsettles him, but the empty interior disturbs him even more. Uh, plot hole. Considering that he never met Paul Malloy in reality, it's never explained how Sheckley was able to perfectly imagine him in his hallucination. Hmm. A riddle for the ages. What caused the disappearance of the original Flight 107 and its crew and 13 passengers? Time travel? Alien abduction? God? It's never explained, which frustrates and baffles Sheckley, who couldn't solve the disappearance. Shattering the illusion. Grant proves that the mysterious airplane that landed in the airport didn't exist and was all an illusion, and he proves it. His fellow gangsters disappear as well, revealing that they weren't real either. The Skyward Scream? This episode ends with the traumatized Sheckley screaming for uh, to the skies about what happened to the real Flight 107 and why he never left any clues for him to find. Spotting the thread. The first thing that clues Sheckley is that something is wrong is when Robbins, the mechanic, mentions the seats on the plane are blue. Sheckley says they're brown and Bingston says they're red. Sheckley didn't have them each look at the tail number and the aircraft is different number. Um, 
So it could be trauma-induced amnesia. Sheckley's failure to solve the case of the original 5107 traumatized him so much that he repressed the memory and it came back to him in the form of a complex illusion. Hmm, interesting. So, that's a little bit of tropes. Yeah. Um, I do have uh, one thing. Um, I believe it was in 2019, The Twilight Zone, in uh, the episode Nightmare at 30,000 Feet. Mm-hmm. Did you watch those? The newer ones? Yeah. No. There is a there is a uh, thing where the narrator says, you know, it's another plane up. So he says, it says something to the effect and mentions this, that, yeah, I've had some experience with a global uh, airline flight 107 from Buffalo. Oh. Yeah. So, so they it's a good callback. It, it's yeah. called it back to this episode. So That's I thought cool. that was pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, go ahead. You move on with some... Uh, Trivia? trivia facts trivia, here. Here are the first ones a doozy. A tragic coincidence connected with this episode. At one point, Sheckley deliberately walks toward the moving propeller blade. The episode's director, Boris Sagal, would be killed in 1981 when he accidentally walked into a helicopter's moving blades. Yeah, it's too bad that helicopter didn't disappear, huh? That's, too soon? That's dark. Too soon? That's dark. Ah. Well, I mean, that, that reminds me of the Twilight Zone movie. Um, did you know what happened in the Twilight Zone movie? Yeah, there were Vic Morrow yeah, yeah, and the yeah. two kids and the. Yeah, yeah that's too soon there. <laughs> Boy, it's again, only been. again, again. Direct all your hate mail at AZ. This I am being good at season three so far. AZ, that's two of this one episode. What man? Come on. So um, number two, the characters all conc- uh, concluded that there was no way possible that an airplane could simply land itself. However, several years earlier in Missouri in 1957, a U.S. Air Force DC three, the same type used in the show, ran out of fuel while carrying people, who all bailed out to safety. The plane guided itself, uh, or glided itself, landing on an empty cornfield intact. So how about that? Hmm. So an empty airplane lands itself. Uh, The exterior shots and hangar scenes were filmed at Santa Monica Airport in California. All other scenes were filmed on the MGM Studio soundstage. The FAA is referred to at least uh, two occasions as the Federal Aviation Agency, its correct name in 1961. The designation was changed in 1966 to the modern-day Federal Aviation Administration. So, name change there. Uh, One of the aircraft tail numbers mentioned in 67588 was an actual C-47 that flew in 1944 and crash-landed in 1988. No no joke about that one. I'll I'll, I'll let that one slide. (laughs) Wow, <laughs> man, you're so serious. I'm serious. I'm, hey, I'm, I'm being good. <laughs> Originally intended for the second season of the Twilight Zone in nineteen, uh, the Twilight Zone, nineteen sixty one. Uh, actually, nineteen sixty. So this episode apparently was originally slated for season two. The FAA does not investigate civilian aircraft incidents, but that changed in nineteen sixty seven. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. The FAA does investigate civilian aircraft incidents, but that changed in 1967 when the National Transportation Safety Board, or the NTSB, took the lead. So apparently they took over from the FAA in 1967. In his introduction, Rod Serling says the word airplane five times. He and the other characters pronounce it aeroplane, 
if you notice that he says aeroplane not airplane uh, like the british speaker uh, uh rod would also say aeroplane a modern speaker would say airplane so apparently i guess rod adapted the king's english and said aeroplane in his uh monologue so uh the last trivia piece i have then uh september 27 1961 in the issue of variety it reviewed the show the uh, quoting saying the show now seems to be feeding itself in three seasons it has created its own set of plot cliches and writer sir rod serling now appears to be weaving them together in multiples with no profounder purpose in mind than to manufacture a provocative show mm-hmm. the outing was slick Pat and extravagantly contrived, wholly unworthy of the proven talents of a dramatist like Sterling. So they're giving him a couple of attaboys there in that variety article. All right, any trivia? You think that was an attaboy or was that a stab at him? No, I think well, no, I think it's saying it's it was slick, pat and extravagantly contrived, wholly unworthy of the proven talents of a dramatist like Sterling. So I think it's an Adam boy. Maybe I'm reading. I think it's a jab. It's a jab. You think? Yeah. Why? Why it doesn't deserve the Adam boy of Sterling? Is that what it's saying? We're saying it's wholly unworthy of the proven talents. I don't know. Yeah, basically, it's this episode's unworthy of the uh, basically the proven talents that he's done everything before this is what I'm taking it as. Yeah, maybe you're right. I read that. Maybe I read that wrong. I read into it wrong. It says he begins to weave them. In multiples with no profounder purpose in mind than to manufacture a provocative show. Basically, so is that a jab? Like, hey, basically, like, hey, you're trying. recycling information that uh, you've already done before is I what I, th- I take I it see as. That now. Yeah. All right. Any trivia from your side of the the zone? <sighs> no, I mean, I, I pretty much gave you. I do like the uh, that he calls the airplane a freak <laughs> at the beginning. Of the it's a freak. Um, yeah, I. I <laughs> Do you want to move into questions and observations? Yeah, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Okay, well, I got a couple goofs I'll stick in here, and then one of them was mine that I actually observed, and you tell me if I'm uh, on the right track. Yeah. After Sheckley meets with the this this one isn't mine. After Sheckley meets with the airplane person or airline personnel in Bengston's office, he dismisses them, saying, "Stay around." Uh, where you can be reached. As the personnel file out the door, the studio lights cast their shadows on the backdrop outside the door of what's supposed to be the airport ground. Again, another flimsy kind of like set errors that people really read into. I, I went back and watched it. You can kind of see a little bit of shadow from the lights as they exit that office, but I mean, nothing to... I don't know. It doesn't seem like that big of a deal to me, but... Mm-hmm. Anyway, here's mine. So... Sheckley addresses the people in the operations room as gentlemen only when there are clearly ladies present and they are actually even referenced in the operations by the operations chief in his lines previously. He says, all right, ladies and gentlemen, and then kind of trying to quiet him down. And then he introduces Sheckley. Well, Sheckley goes, he just says, gentlemen only. So I'm not sure if that was written in the script that way because, you know, Sheckley's you know, because of his character or if it was just a possible error and omission by the actor's part by just addressing them as gentlemen. If you look at the TV, Mm -hmm. look at the background. Uh Is that a dummy? Oh, the lady standing by the coat rack? Is that what you're talking about? The lady sitting there, is that a dummy? I don't know. But there are stewardesses in that. Uh, There's one standing up, but look at this one. This one looks like she doesn't move. She doesn't breathe. 
Like these other ones? <laughs> Let's see the cutaway again of her. Oh, hang on. Let me go back. But, I, but I'm just saying, yeah, it's... So that might be a potential goof? That's what I'm saying. It yeah. looks like, because there's like the lady back here and that lady, and this one just looks like, hey, we have an extra dummy. Let's throw this. Oh, maybe. Um, okay, watch. See, you'll, uh, I'll show it, play it for you again. So um, I just thought, when I was watching, I was like, that, that looks like really bad. Like, yeah, she's not moving at all. She's in that same position, if you watch. And I thought, man, this is really weird. You can't see her breathe or nothing. Maybe she's a, a an extra dummy from what was that episode? Yes, yeah, so I was gonna say the night, uh, the one with the the mannequins. Yeah, <laughs> or the uh, the one where the guy was in the elevator and just had the really bad yeah. ones. Um, but yeah, that's the only thing that came to my mind. I was like, I'm gonna show Eric that because I don't know. Yeah, questions and observations, Jimbo. You're chomping at the bit. Tell me what you think overall about this episode. Uh, it's better than the last one by far. Um, yeah, six and a half, probably seven, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, it keeps you on the edge of your seat. Um, you could see where it was going. I didn't expect it. I really wish he would have stuck his hand in the propellers and nothing, and he just sawed it off and be done <laughs> yeah, with it. That would have been awesome. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, no, that would have been too dark. Yes, too no, dark. No, that would right. been okay. My joke was too dark. <laughs> that would have been, okay. been fine. Yeah, because he he assumes automatically that if he gets his arm ripped off, he's gonna die. That's not necessarily the case. <laughs> Um, the prop I would take from this, I know Eric's probably going to take the whole airplane. Um, I think you I would take. It. I think I would take the flight manifest. Okay. Um, and, and what I don't understand is the flight manifest was your first hint because he starts naming off all these places. Like, why do they sound familiar? Right. So, I do have a question for you. When he asked if uh, the plane came in, and again like, yeah, he looks at that newspaper or whatever, and it says that singer or whatever mm-hmm. or a theater agent yeah, i kind of left that part out yeah sorry. do you know who that was no, or anything i, I don't either I, I, did, I didn't really make sense to me why that was in there just basically like hey it was a high high profile person coming into town right maybe. yeah i didn't recognize the the person in the photo either right um yeah but for me yeah it's okay uh it, it it's way better than the last one like i said six five seven for me so all right you i'm gonna take it from you i'm I've just got a, a couple observations here. Sheckley seems to be very sure of himself in the early stages of the episode by saying like things like he'll lay his batting average down any hour of the day against anybody, right? But by his his nice, neat little world of everything has a reasonable explanation is washed away and unraveled very quickly by the end. You definitely can see that, and obviously it drove him insane. And here's one thing. Tell me what you think, Jimbo. He seems more upset that his impeccable record is going to be tarnished more than the loss of life and loss of aircraft itself, right? Did you pick up on that at all? Like, it's like, I'm more concerned about solving this for myself rather than trying to, you know. Mm. He just seems so... He's arrogant, I mean, but... I mean, all of them... I mean, Hercule Poirot, or Poirot, or whatever his name is, from, like, The Death of the Nile and Murder on the Orient Express, all that, you know, they're, they're good. They're good for a reason. And, you know, it's like Sherlock Holmes. He was always like, yeah, yeah well, here you go. Here you go, my dear Watson. Here's the answer. Yeah. Um, I think it's just he has a right to be. It's like it's like you at your job. You would say you're an aficionado at your job. And if somebody came in and said a new person. Oh, they can have my job any No, but, I, but do you see what I'm saying? If somebody came in and said, no, what about this? You'd be like, no, we've done this. Right. I've, I've done this yeah, so many that. times. I've never made a mistake. Yeah, I get It that. has to be here. But then it turns into something like that. So. Yeah. 
Yeah, this question I think we've already answered. Did the fact that the case of the missing aircraft drive Sheckley insane, as he exclaims, we've always found the causes. We've always found the causes. He says it like over (laughs) and over and over at the end. Yeah, so I think the answer of that one's pretty obvious. I like the Odyssey of Flight 33 better than this personally. I thought it was a better ghost ship type story where they got stuck in a time warp or whatever, and they're just flying out there in the twilight zone well, better I think, than this one. And I thought the twist was a it was a bit of a letdown to me. It's I, almost a double twist. I don't know how they could have made it any better. I mean, I guess the the intensity mounts when he's getting ready to stick his hand in, and yeah, I guess it's kind of cool. I think I like the one where the. Um was it the American or British soldier, uh, air strip guy came landed? Oh, and he's yeah. from the future or from the past, and right. he goes back out. I, I like dog, that one. Dog fighting in World War One. Yeah, or I like that one. I think better than both of them. So, yeah, uh, there was a a real fascination with air travel, airplanes. He, he wrote a lot about uh, airline um, episodes. Yeah, so prop piece for me is like you said, the airplane. Where are you going to put that, Eric? I don't know. I have to. Build I, usually a have, I usually have to think small and get, get build some, a hanger, baby. <laughs> build a hanger at your backyard. Yeah, maybe I don't know. Uh, but yeah, I don't. I think that's pretty much it. Uh, IMDb gave it a seven two. I think it's probably around a seven two. I I think I liked uh, the episode two uh, slightly better than this one. I'd probably. Uh, so if I gave, I think I gave two a seven. I'd probably you give this one me. a six. You say you gave episode two, which this is episode two. You're confusing me, Eric. Yeah, sorry. So, so the first episode, so of the season episode three. one entitled two. There we go. I rated it a seven. This episode, episode two, um, I would probably rate it like a six eight. Just so you're saying you like the first yes. one better? Yes. Lord have mercy. Yeah. It's going to be a long. Come se- at me. It's going to be a long season three, folks. <laughs> if you think our our arguments have been, I just can't. And I'm telling you right now, if you say anything bad about my favorite episode in this season, it's on like Donkey Kong. Is yeah, all I'm telling well, you. I'll be ready by then. Yeah, you better be prepping because that movie, that episode's a. I'm going to change your mind. I don't know. Now. I'd have to watch it again. Yeah, that's it's right. actually been a while since right. I watched it. Well, this tragedy's coming to a close. <laughs> I think that's a wrap on this episode. And that's a wrap. And cut. Picture of a man with an Achilles heel. A mystery that landed in his life and then turned into a heavy weight, dragged across the years to ultimately take the form of an illusion. Now, that's the clinical answer that they put on the tag as they take him away. But if you choose to think that the explanation has to do with an airborne flying Dutchman, a ghost ship in a fog-enshrouded night and a flight that never ends, then you're doing your business in an old stand in the Twilight Zone. (laughs) 